The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I want you to imagine for a moment you've been sharing Christ with a friend at work and they have seemed truly interested in what you've had to say. You've studied the Bible together. You've read books with this person. You've had many long conversations with them. And finally, they come to a place of confession that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, and they desire to follow after him. And you are now overjoyed about this. And in your excitement, you say, now I would love for you to start coming to my church. And they look at you funny and say, why should I go to church? And you say, well, that's just, that's just what Christians do. They go to church so they can grow. And they reply, well, no, I, I know plenty of Christians that don't attend church, and I can grow without all that. I can live stream sermons. I can study the Bible on my own. I can listen to podcasts. There are many ways to grow without going to church. And, and you begin to fumble around for a response, and you say, well, you're just supposed to go to church. It's kind of like eating your vegetables. Like, no one knows why we do it. We're just supposed to, it's good for us. We're just supposed to do it. And, but now you're the one that's wrestling with that question. Why do we need the church? Why do I do this every week? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I do this every week? Why do I get up early, get myself ready, battle with the kids to eat their breakfast, battle with them just to get into the car, and pray they don't argue on the way? Why do I put myself through all of that? So maybe you've had that conversation with yourself, maybe someone you know. But over the last few decades, the number of people who say, I follow Jesus, but I don't, I don't do church, that's been trending up. We know that. That was already happening. And then 2020 happened. And it wasn't just COVID and all that came with that, but there was political tension and there was racial tension. And of course, some churches, they said too much. And so those people left. And some churches said too little and those people left. And ironically, many people canceled their church. And what's ironic about that is, is that Christians say they don't like cancel culture, but then we did it to ourselves. We did it to ourselves. That trend was happening well before 2020, but those couple of years just accelerated an already happening trend. And there's these two researchers named Jim Davis and Michael Graham. They released a book entitled The Great Dechurching, uh, about two weeks ago, and they say that we are living in the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history right now. They say that there are around 40 million Americans who used to go to church at least once per month. Now they attend less than once per year. And in their research, they discovered there's these misconceptions about why people leave the church. Now, to be clear, some people, of course, leave for these reasons, but they're not the, not the primary reason people leave the church most of the time. So there's these misconceptions they discovered about why people leave the church. The first one is this. People leave primarily because of negative experiences. Now, do those things happen? Of course they do. Do people leave over it? Of course they do. But it's just not the same level we might think in our minds that people do it that often. Number two, young people leave after attending secular universities. 
what they found was that many people, if they stay committed to the church, no matter what school they go to, they will come out on the other side and be just as faithful to the church afterwards as they were before. Number three, people leave church because they left the faith. That's not always the case either. And then number four, the people leaving are primarily on the political left. Now, the last one, they say, was true back in the late 90s, but guess who's leaving at the fastest rate today? It is those that are on the political right, which should not be all that surprising to us. Now, listen, I'm not downplaying the reasons for leaving. This, of course, is true for some. It's just not the main reasons why people leave most of the time. Do you know one of the top reasons why people leave the church? Wait for it. They moved. Something as simple as that. Roughly three-fourths of the people that they, that they surveyed, they, they did so for casual reasons. They left the church for casual reasons like moving or kids' sports schedules or simply having a new child. We think people leave for all these dramatic reasons, and at times that's true, but usually they do so casually and unintentionally. They didn't even mean to do it but it just happened. That may have been you in the past, or it might be someone that you know, but here's the good news that they discovered, that many are saying they are willing to come back, and they are looking for two things. They're looking for healthy relationships and a local church that demonstrates how the gospel is true, good, and beautiful. Now, we have to become a place of hospitality that welcomes that kind of person back in. Uh, We've been encouraged the last couple of weeks, a a former student of mine that graduated about 10 years ago has been coming to our Sunday evening home group, and she's come the last couple of weeks, and she shared with us last week how when she was in college and living in different cities when she was uh, a young adult, that she would walk into a church much like this one, and she would just be sitting by herself. And at times, people wouldn't even Extend a, hand, extend, extend a hand to greet her. Other times they would. One, couple, one time a couple reached out to her and said, hey, um, do you want to go to lunch after church? And she ends up plugging into that church um, for a couple of years when she was in whatever city that she was in. And as she shared that story, I thought about how, you know, I've never personally experienced what she just described. I grew up in a church where I'm from, I moved to Texas and worked at a church as an intern for a few years, so it was kind of like I was on staff. Then I came here to TBC and have been on staff here ever since. I've never had to walk into a church building by myself and sit by myself, not knowing anyone, and just wait to meet someone. So we have to be a place, a place of hospitality that welcomes in people people that are in those situations that are like that. Writer and speaker Rebecca McLaughlin said that she and her husband have three rules of engagement when they go to church. Number one, someone sitting alone in our gathering is an emergency. Number two, friends can wait. And number three, introduce a new person to someone else. You know, we say to live missional out there, but we can also live missional right in here. We did a a church-wide survey a few months ago, and we discovered this. This has been a common trend for the last six or seven years at our church. Do you know that over around 40% of our people here are new to TBC in the last four years? That's like a whole new church. 
And so keep that in mind as you sit where you sit, as you talk to people, as you relate to people where they're out there in the chairs on Sunday morning, that they may not have been here as long as you may think they have been here, and they might need someone to reach out and include them and bring them in. So we can all play a part, I think, in that and help and get them connected. So why do we need the church? Well, let's, first, let's define our terms. Mark Dever writes, the, body, the church is a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So for those that are following along on our home group discussion guides uh, during the week, this is taken straight from that, this definition of how we define the church. So listen, we cannot be the church by ourselves. Being the church means that we profess faith to the world, but we also give evidence that we've been saved by how we live. So for our first scripture, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. This is called the, the birthplace of the church. And in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 1, Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection, and he tells them not to leave Jerusalem until they have received the Holy Spirit, and then he ascends to be with the Father. And then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrives and, and fills the people as Jesus had promised that he would, and then Peter preaches this riveting sermon And 3,000 people become followers of Christ in one day. The church goes from around 120 people to like a mega church in in one afternoon. So what did it look like for all these new Christ followers? We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage describes what happened to all these new believers in the early church. So 3,000, the church goes by 3,000 in one day, and they're spending all this time talking about Jesus, eating together, praying for one another. People are selling their stuff and giving money to the poor. They're sharing meals in their homes. I mean, what a scene breaks out in Acts chapter 2. Now, I know sometimes we can look at the early church and we can look at images like this, a scene like this, and we can think things like, you know, why can't the church just be like it was back in the early church? Well, keep reading. Things take a dark turn around Acts chapter 5, and the rest of the New Testament unpacks that as well. But we, we, we're, not, we're, not, we're not trying to idealize and hold up as this is, the, this is the perfection. It wasn't perfection, but we do see just an amazing scene unfold here in the early church. These are new believers, and I want you to notice something. The first couple of words in verse 42, the word devoted. These are new believers, and it says they are already devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they weren't approaching church like a consumer with a, you know, what's in it for me attitude. You know, at times we, in the church, we adopt what I call the restaurant mentality. If you go to a restaurant and they give you good service, you go back. If you go to a restaurant and they give you poor service, you go somewhere else. And we do similar kinds of behavior, I think, in the church context. 
we see the church and his leadership that, that our job is to produce spiritual goods and services for our people to consume. And if they like it, they stay around. If they don't, they might go somewhere else. And we start to see the church with this like consumeristic mindset and mentality. And we struggle with that today. But these new believers, it says they are devoting themselves. So, so the people, the people here, they're the ones that are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. At times we think the, it's, the, it's the pastor's job, the leader's job to, to do the spiritual growth thing in the most painless way possible, the, the most entertaining way possible. It's on us to keep the people interested. But here it says the people were devoted to the teaching. These are, these are brand new believers, so the scene that plays out here is, is one of the main reasons that we have set up these things called home groups or community groups. Now, when you enter these environments, it's, it's not, there's not a lot of bells and whistles. It's fairly simple. There's going to be some teaching, some fellowship. That word is koinonia, meaning to hold something in common. There's going to be some shared meals. If you come to my group, there is some really good shared meals that we have together. There is praying for one another. Uh, This word devoted means persistence and perseverance, implying that sometimes it's going to be a struggle and that you might want to bail. It's not always going to be easy. The word fellowship means that you hold something in common. Hint, it's Jesus that transcends all other things about you, all the differences between you. So if you're in a home group or a community group, I want you to think through the Rolodex in your mind of all the people that are in your group right now. Think about all the different personalities, different professions that are represented in your home group. Many wouldn't be in the same room apart from Christ. It's amazing how he brings people from various backgrounds together. It's a miracle. And one aspect of this scene that I love is the end where it says, having favor with all the people, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's how we've defined community for our church. Because there was something attractive to the outsider about what was happening in this community. So we define it this way. A place we live out the one another's of scripture before a watching world. Community is always missional. At times we think of community as just the goal or it is the mission. No, we should be a community that's on a mission together. This means that our home group should never be facing inward but should always face outward. So how can we live in such a way that the watching world can can peer in and take notice and desire to be a part? Two things. We have to be people who are hospitable And we also have to allow space for new people to enter in. So recently, uh, I'd say the last year, year and a half, the home group I attend on Sunday evenings just kind of exploded. And it was a really good thing. And it was awesome to, to experience. But the problem is, like, no one has a house that's big enough to, with all the people that we have. At times, it felt like we were at some busy flea market, you know, trying to make our way through. And it was just difficult for everyone. And, and the idea of, of new people joining, we like the idea, but it's like someone's going to have to find a bigger house if we're going to continue this trajectory. 
So we started talking with our leaders about, you know, what can we do? How can we do this? And we decided, a very hard decision to, to, for us to do, but we decided to, you know, d- divide the small group or, or split the group. And we use those two words, and people would say, don't use those words. That sounds negative. And so someone said, it's like we're, we're giving birth. And I was like, no, let's not do that. Let's go back to splitting. That's more positive. So we had to divide the group to make more space for new people because it was getting to a point where even if we said, yeah, yeah, you can come, they may not want to come back after that first time. It's just so crowded. And so we have to be people that are hospitable but also make space for others. You know, it's interesting because our kids, our kids didn't like it. Our kids at first were like, no, you're taking us away from our friends, and I get all that. But it was a chance to teach our kids to live on mission and say, listen, guys, like, you're going to make time for your friends. But we're trying to live on mission together and make space for others to be able to come into community possibly. And it's not really just all about us. So listen, this is why we don't recommend that you simply start a home group with all your closest friends. Because that might sound great, but everyone else that's showing up to that group may feel like they're interrupting a family reunion each week. And they feel like they're on the outside if it's just you and your closest friends. Community and friendship, I don't think are the same thing. Because community should make people say, how did these people end up together? There's only one reason, and it's because of Jesus. You know, in the New Testament, we see there's these two undeniable truths. Truth number one, you do not come to Christ without coming to his people. Our relationship with Christ shapes our relationship with one another. We see in Galatians chapter 3, 26, 28, it says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, sons of God, that's not meant to be just males. That means that means men and women. It's a positional term. It's family language. That means you come to Christ, you are adopted into his family. For as many of you as were baptized, that means identified with Christ, into Christ, having put on Christ, that means when you come to faith in him, his righteousness is applied to you, and you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. This does not mean that people lose their social categories completely when they come into the the church, but it just means that that there should not be division in the church. These should not be cause for, for factions or divisions in the church, these social categories, because we're one in Christ. So whenever we surrender to Christ, we're identified with him, We're united to Christ, and being one with him means that we are united to everyone else who calls him Lord. So, for example, whenever a family decides to adopt a child, that that child does not have just a new relationship with mom and dad. They also become a brother or a sister. They become a cousin, a nephew, a niece. They get a constellation of relationships because of their relationship with mom and dad. It's a package deal. They now have lots of other new relationships. Because of our relationship with Jesus, we consider every other believer like family. And that's a biblical idea. In other passages, Paul likens the church to a human body. 
Every person is like a member of a body. And so a Christian, by definition, has a deep connection and a responsibility to other Christians. So in the same way that all the members of your body has a responsibility to all the other members of your body, the same is true for us that are, call ourselves Christ followers. So, so church is not a meeting that you attend, but it's a body to which you belong. So you do not come to Christ without coming to his people. And truth number two, you cannot serve Christ without serving his people. Matthew 25, 40 says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. These are Jesus' words. He, he's describing the relationship that he has with his people or that we have through him with, the, with his people. He's not talking about just serving people in general, but about his brothers and sisters. So what we do to the church, we do to Jesus. That means neglecting the church is neglecting Jesus. There's this popular idea out there. I like Jesus, but I don't, I don't like the church. But we forget that Jesus and the church sort of come together. They go together. He, he, he's the groom, and he calls the church his what? His, his bride. So, so what, if, what if someone walked up to me and they said, you know, Dave, you, you seem like a nice guy. I really like you, Dave. You're a great guy. But I do not like your wife. How is that conversation going to go for them? Because if you offend my wife, you offend me. Like, we're, we're a package deal. Jesus and the church are a package deal. To, 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 treat, the church, to treat the church poorly is to treat Jesus poorly. Or sometimes if the church gets too messy, we, we start to back away and retreat into all the digital spaces. And, you know, we'll do some, some live stream. We'll mix in some podcasts. We'll read some, some books. I mean, nothing too thick, but, you know, some books. And, and we, we start to feel like we're growing, but we're not really in community or, or serving people face-to-face. Now, listen, sometimes online resources, I thank God for those things. I use them myself a lot of times. But they, they can be necessary for certain seasons and certain circumstances, but they should only be supplemental. The Christian, you see, the Christian life has always been this embodied faith. It, you, can't, you can't just download or stream the Christian life. Jesus came to us in the flesh, and he dwelt among us. And so we are to, we are to enter into the lives of other people in the same way, in the flesh, dwelling with one another. We don't stay distant, but we come close just like Jesus. These words by Ronald Rollheiser, he says, the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individualistic quest. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she, who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with the visible neighbor on earth is a liar. Since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. A Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God.
We, we can't separate serving Christ and serving others. They're, they're a package deal. So what do we miss if we neglect community? First, a disclaimer. I believe that community is best lived out, or that discipleship is best lived out in community. When I was younger in my faith, I thought of discipleship as only happening just one-on-one primarily, and there is a time and place for that, but I think when you, when you look at the scriptures, I think what you see, the picture that you see is it primarily happening in community, and here's why I say that, because of things like the spiritual gifts, because when you think of the spiritual gifts, if we're not, if you're just doing one-on-one stuff, or even just the podcast, live stream, reading some books, there's no spiritual gifts involved in that, at least not on a, on a fully or scale. So we can't experience all the gifts if we're not a part of community. We can't experience someone else's gift encouraging us or, or building us up or growing us. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He says, he's listing off people in the church that are kind of in that like maybe leadership realm of the local church. And he says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, why do they exist? It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith. At times, people think that it's a pastor's job to do all the discipleship. Now, listen, our job is to equip you for works of ministry. And when these, when these gifts work together, it leads to the body being built up. It leads to unity. It leads to maturity. So if we're not in community, we can't use our gifts to build up the body or to experience the gifts of other people in building us up in our faith. So what good is more Bible knowledge if we're not going to use it to encourage one another? We often think of growth as just simply information transfer. Like I just take in information and somehow I just, I just grow somehow as an individual. And, and our Christian life is just consumed with like, I just take in information. I read information. I take it in through my ears. And that's how we visualize growth. But listen, if that's not being lived out in, in spiritual gifting in the community, then what good is that knowledge? In our church-wide survey a few months ago, one of the questions was, are you in a home group? I'm going to step on some toes here this morning. And around 60% of those who come into this room on a Sunday morning said that they are not currently. Now listen, we don't want this to be about, you know, clubbing you over the head with some legalistic demand, but this is more like an, just an invitation. That if you're not in community, you're missing out. You're missing out on a huge blessing. You're, you're denying us the chance to enjoy your spiritual gifts. You're denying yourself the chance to let someone else's gifts work in building you up in your faith. And I think you're missing out on a big blessing. The second reason why I think community has to primarily happen in community, or discipleship happens in community, is the one another uh, passage we see all over, the, all over the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are many of these passages that we talk about a lot of the time. And if you're not in community, I would ask you, where in your life are you experiencing the following? Be at peace with one another. 
love one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Carry each other's burdens. Confess your sins to one another. Forgive one another. I heard someone say, if you've never had to ask forgiveness from someone, then you've never lived in community. How about this one? Bear with one another. Who are you having to bear with? If all you do is live stream, the only thing you might have to bear with is your spotty Wi-Fi signal, right? But who do you have to bear with? This is partly why I think that it's not always best just to pick your best friends, closest friends, and do a group because it, it, it tends to stay insulated and never tends to be outward facing. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love these couple of verses. This is not meant to be some competitive thing. How can we outdo one another? The idea is like, how can we stir each other up towards love and good deeds? This is like inspiring. How can you inspire each other towards love and good works? I think of a couple of examples in our church. When I first came here many years ago on staff, uh, the church I came from before, like mission trips were like what the youth did every summer. Just one, just one trip. Mission trips, youth do that, they go overseas, they serve somewhere, then they come back, and we're done. And I come here, and I'm realizing this is like a whole different way of looking at global outreach. I never considered it before. And I'm seeing families, like, move their family overseas for a couple years. And they may have little kids, and, and you want to say, I mean, you got, are you sure you have, you have little kids? They're like, no, no, we're going to go. We're going to go serve for a couple years. And they might come back, they might go again. And then someone else is coming back, they're going to go again. And there's trips happening, and we have a Rwanda team leaving today to go overseas into Rwanda. And it's just like this lifestyle of mission I never considered before. And so you, if you come here long enough, you might be like, you know, I, I saw them go overseas for a couple of years. We, we might want to do that. We might be able to go. I know it was a struggle, but we saw how they, they did it and, and how God provided, and I think we can do that. I also see this in the area of adoption in our church. A lot of people adopt here at TBC and foster. And listen, if you stay around long enough, I mean, you just might. Because there's something about being a part of the body of Christ that just that stirs one another up to love and good works. And this is the early church it's describing here, and some are already in the habit of not meeting together. And it says that here, that not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So that wasn't just an idea. It was actually happening. But to choose to not meet together is missing this really important idea that the church is vital because it is what God uses to encourage us in our faith. And it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near, referring to the day of Christ's return and judgment. And we think sometimes that we're, that if we're more mature in the faith, that we need the church less and less. But God says we need it more and more and more as that day draws near. 
So if we, don't, if we don't gather regularly, then we're saying that we don't need the encouragement that God wants to give us. We're saying we won't be the encouragement for someone else. So we are both needy and needed in the church. And this is why if you're able to be in here in these gatherings, we need you in the building. St. John of the Cross said this, the virtuous soul that is alone is like the burning coal that is alone. It will grow colder rather than hotter. So soon, hopefully soon, there will be a cold day in Texas. I don't know when, but it's going to happen. You just got to keep the faith. But when that day comes, and it might just be one day, when it's about 65 degrees and it's freezing, you will go to the store and you'll get some logs and you will put them in the fire. You will light them on fire in your fireplace. Uh, you don't really need it. It's just for nostalgia. I mean, like you'll turn on the ceiling fan and turn on the AC and you'll sweat, but you just want to do that. And, and what's going to happen is one of those logs is going to pop. It's going to pop out a few coals. And what happens when it does in my house is that before that thing even hits the carpet, thankfully, it just gets snuffed out. Because once it leaves the fire, of course, it's just going to cool very quickly. And that's the idea that he's communicating here. There's something about being together in person that causes us to stir up one another to love and good works. So here's a great diagnostic question for all of us. If every Christian in the world adopted your view of church, would the church grow and flourish or would it cease to exist? What if everyone in the world did their own thing in the digital spaces? Well, the church couldn't exist. What if everyone in the world attended the service but never plugged into community and never gave of their time or resources? Well, it would cease to exist. Several years ago, I read a story about an American long-distance, about American long-distance runners. In the 1970s and 80s, Americans dominated the sport. But in the 1990s, things began to change. And what changed was they began training by themselves, hiring personal running coaches. And their performances suffered because of that. They began to realize that the three most successful countries, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Japan, all had one thing in common, and it was that they trained in groups together. And so eventually, the American runners embraced this idea of group training again, and their times began to pick up and improve. One runner named Dathan Ritzenhine, he says, he tells a story of how he was training alone, just trying to get better, trying to improve his times. And he was training so intensely, and he had all these personalized coaches and specialists, but his times weren't improving. He even tried moving from Colorado to Oregon for a different altitude to see if that would help. But he just plateaued in his training regiment. It wasn't until he embraced the concept of group training that his times began to, to pick back up. And eventually he went on to break the American record for the 5,000 meters. 
He said this, running alone, you can't push yourself as hard because you feed off the energy of other people. I think we can learn something here, that in the body of Christ, we run better together. Two weeks ago, I received a text message from a student of mine that I had in Arlington at a group up, a youth group up in Arlington at a church up there. And uh, this, I was in my early 20s when I was working as an intern at this church, and there was this guy named John, and he was a, a faithful, regular member of our youth group back then. And listen, John and I, we had some, we would butt heads sometimes. I would challenge him on some things. If, if you said to me, with all my students, Dave, like out of all these students, like who do you think's most likely to stay committed to the church well into their adult years, I would not have pointed at John. I wouldn't have done it. But two weeks ago, John texted me. We still keep in touch some. And he said this in his text message. He had just led a group, a men's ministry group, that morning at his church, and he said, he said, I facilitated the discussion with the men's group this morning, and we talked about the youth decline in Christianity And it had me talking about how important your role was in my life and keeping me at church after high school. Just wanted to tell you how how much I appreciate your life calling and thank you for all that you do. Now listen, I'm not saying that to prop myself up. I'm saying that because that's a person that gets it. That well into his 40s, he, he gets the vision that I've got to stay connected to the body of Christ. It's vital for me spiritually. And I hope we understand that this morning. Listen to these words. At her best and at her worst, Jesus loves his church. He laid down his life for her. He will never leave or forsake her. He will complete the work he started in her. In other words, Jesus never looked for more of God by having less of the church. Instead, he married her. The church is the chosen, beloved bride of Christ. What does it say about us if the church is good enough for the Father to adopt and the Spirit to inhabit and for Jesus to marry, but not good enough for us to join? God, we thank you for loving your church, your bride, so unconditionally, so faithfully, so loyally, and God, forgive us when we, we fail to love her in the same way that you do. God, help us to see the church, the local church, and also the universal church as your bride that you care so much about. God, help us to be people who desire to stay connected, not just to sit in a chair, not just to watch something on a screen, but to connect with people, to live these things out before a watching world so that we can reach them with the gospel. God, make us a people like that. We pray this in your name. Amen.